I want you to dial back to whenever you graduated college. For me, that's a few years ago. <laughs> Maybe for younger ruckus makers, that might just be a year or two ago. Doesn't matter. But the point is this. You're filled with so much excitement and energy and motivated to be the best for your students, right? For the school where you now find yourself working. And if you're like me, you know, I told my mom I was never going to work in the schools in the suburbs. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I grew up outside of Chicago. But through my undergrad experience, I learned that all schools aren't created equal, especially in terms of resources in terms of quality of the staff. And I knew in my heart that I was going to be an awesome teacher. So I wanted to go to one of the neediest schools. Well, my guest today, Dr. Julie Warner, she made a similar choice in that uh, she was hired to teach a remedial English course. Tons of potential, tons of opportunity there. But on day one, she found out not only is it quote unquote remedial course, but her students were a little different than expected in that They didn't speak English at all either. And the job in a second got that much more complex. So that's where we start today's podcast and the lessons learned from all the mistakes that Julie made that first year teaching uh, this class. And then we'll, you know, talk about a lot of great stuff, including her awesome new book, which I highly recommend you check out. And it is called Failure Before Success. Teachers describe what they learned from mistakes. It's extremely practical, relevant. Uh, you get engaged right off the bat, and you'll learn a lot from mistakes that other awesome educators have made before you. Hey, it's Daniel, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after a message from our show sponsors. Learn how to successfully drive school change and help your diverse stakeholders establish priorities and improve practice in leading change. A certificate of school management and leadership course from Harvard. Leading change runs from February 2nd to March 2nd, 2022. Apply by January 21st at Better Leaders, Better Schools, dot com slash Harvard. Are you automatically tracking online student participation data during COVID? Innovative school leaders across the country have started tracking online student participation using TeachFX because it's one of the most powerful ways to improve student outcomes during COVID, especially for English learners and students of color. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash B-L-B-S. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Hello, Ruckus Maker. I'm excited to introduce to you Julie Warner, who I've experienced personally as extremely uh, innovative and generous, and I really appreciate how she's helped me out. But in terms of her bio, Julie is an education writer and national and international consultant with a specific focus on ed tech and teacher wellness. 
She holds a doctorate in education from Columbia University and has worked as an education policy advisor in the U.S. Senate and the White House. Until recently, she oversaw the teacher issues portfolio within the U.S. Department of Education's internal think tank. And I should say then, welcome to the show, Dr. Warner. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, I'd love for you to take us to the moment when you were a first-year teacher. I think you were teaching remedial English, and you learned a lot from what you called some mistakes. And so what was that all about? Yeah, yeah. So I have this new book coming out that uh, is all about mistakes and failure. And I, I just wanted to start out by saying that we have to think about mistakes sometimes as just critical incidents, right? Nobody's sort of in the wrong or, or having done anything wrong. But I made tons of mistakes early on as a first year teacher. I was in my early 20s, fresh out of undergrad had not had a whole lot of contact with students in the classroom engaging in real practice. The extent of that had been a little bit of student teaching, taking over someone else's class. And here I was in a brand new school context I'd never been in before. Um, I'm from Atlanta and had gone to an urban setting high school, went into this new teaching position in the middle of the country in South Georgia in the peanut and cotton fields and was really kind of a fish out of water and maybe didn't know it. So I took a job as a remedial English teacher and I thought, okay, I can do this. I'm, I've, I've got a background in English education. Remedial shouldn't really be an issue. And I came in and realized that I was standing before a class of migrant students and they had been mislabeled perhaps as remedial ed. And so there I was having to figure out how to teach English as a second language, essentially on the fly through the lens of English teaching and literature and writing. And so that was, that was really tough. And I made a ton of pedagogical mistakes along the way. And I also just didn't have a sense of cultural competence to really understand how to interact with the other teachers there and faculty um, sort of looked at me like, who is this person that's not from this community? It was a really insular kind of community. And um, I didn't do myself any favors by, you know, the way that I interacted with them and uh, really didn't fit in, didn't get plugged in. And you know how that can really affect the way that a teacher performs if they're feeling ostracized, if they are not able to get plugged into the support systems that exist in a, in a school context. So I was, I was drowning. Sounds, it sounds tough. And I have, I have more important on topic questions, but being in, in Georgia, I'm curious if you tried the boiled peanuts at all. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I actually can make a really mean bat boiled peanut myself. Okay. That sounds good. From Chicago, that was a new experience experience for me. So I actually just drove by all the stalls that said boiled peanuts. I said no, but I, <laughs> but I think you, <laughs> maybe I should have tried it out. So I don't know. Well, jury's still out on that one. Yeah, it's a really polarizing food, I know. <laughs> cool. 
Um, so, you, you know, you mentioned uh, a lot of mistakes and uh, just like the cultural proficiency and learning, you know, who the students were in front of you. And if you did a, a bit of homework on the population you served, what do you, what do you think you would have found out that would have helped you create more belonging in your classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. And something I've thought about a lot, incidentally, we had been told to, as new teachers, to drive around the community and just see what you could see, just sort of mm. look around. And actually, later on, I, in pursuing my doctorate, did an ethnographic study. So I was in the community as a participant, you know, moved to the place that I was, you know, observing the school um, context for the study. And I know now how important that really is to get plugged in on in that way, to be able to really understand how people are living, what kind of resources they're working with at home when we're asking students to do different things for homework, to carry out different kinds of activities that draw on resources that they may or may not have, um, to understand what kids are doing outside of school, what kind of demands on their time exist and just to really understand what what we're asking of them and 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 in turn to be able to understand how we can better support them I think what I would have needed to have done would have been to talk to more parents Um, I think at that time in that particular context parents didn't necessarily feel comfortable coming in and talking to the teacher and a lot of the parents that I did talk to you know would have kind of their eyes down It, it seemed like they were almost intimidated to talk to a teacher or an authority figure and, you know, to be able to understand sort of what their perception of, of schooling was, what their perception mm. of teachers and school leaders was, I think would have gone really far for me. Right. So I, I hear you saying, you know, drive, drive around the community, uh, see what you see and that you would have had a lot more conversations with parents and just to make it very practical for ruckus maker listening, would there be, you know, a handful of like guiding questions that you might've asked talking to parents or how would you approach those conversations? Yeah, I think I would just get to know parents as people one-on-one and just ask, you know, simple things that you would ask anyone that was a friend or a relative, right? Just how are you? What are, what are you, what's going on for you these days? What's, what's on your mind and heart? You know, those kind of things where you're just connecting with someone as another human being. Yeah. So you don't have to overcomplicate it. Just be a normal person. And of course, you know, end the uh, conversation with boiled peanuts or no. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you're in South Georgia, if you offer a boiled peanut to someone, that can be a real bridge maker. Yeah. Unless you're from the Midwest. But I agree with you for sure. (laughs) So correct me if I'm wrong, but from your story, I think you shared with me that by Year three or four, you were you were burnt out. And I'm just curious, you know, what, what led to that? Yeah, I think a couple of things led to that. I think systemically, we expect a lot of teachers and ask way too much in my estimation. I was expected or at least assumed that I had to say yes to showing up at 630 in the morning and staying until the sun went down. I had... Um, students coming in for tutoring before school. And I was happy to do that. But then I'm on my feet teaching all day, you know, with hardly a bathroom break um, to be had. You're covering hall duty, lunch duty, 
you know, there's not really any breathing room. And then I had two or three clubs at night and, you know, sports that I sponsored. And then oftentimes you'd be asked to monitor a football game and, you know, you'd be there literally all of your life. And it's not, in my, in, in my opinion, it's just not, it's not healthy. It doesn't support teachers having that well-rounded life uh, where they have that breathing room, where they have a sense of self outside of their practice. And I, I don't get me wrong. I, I think that there's nothing more admirable than what I see teachers doing, which is giving their whole selves and caring deeply enough to do that and make those sacrifices. But I think that causes a lot of us to become burned out. And for me, that that's exactly what happened. I was exhausted. I felt taken advantage of. I didn't feel seen by our school leadership in terms of, you know, my humanity. It almost seemed like, you know, I was there to cover things that they needed covered, a warm body to monitor, to, you know, carry out whatever the policies were, but not looked at as a, a person with her own unique, you know, needs. The majority of people that listen to the show, I'd say, are in the principal or EP position, although, you know, there's folks in central office that are listening, and then, of course, classroom leaders, the teachers as well. But for the, the principal or the AP, that ruckus maker, what might you offer them to, to consider hearing your story of burnout? And I mean, that's probably fairly common, unfortunately, within, within our industry. Um, yeah, what might you offer them in terms of interacting with faculty and just thinking through all that? Yeah, it's really tough, right? And I've, I've worked at the policy level, so I understand what the constraints are that school leaders are working with. There isn't an uh, excess resource to draw from, you know, that you only have a certain number of teachers. You might have to spread them really thin. And I wonder if there are ways that you can acknowledge the extra work that teachers are doing, make them feel seen. I, I really did feel kind of used and abused uh, personally. Mm. And I think, you know, if somebody just would have said, like, I see you, I see all that you're bringing to this. I, I care about your health. I care about your wellness and anywhere that, that things can be built into the day to support teacher wellness, whether that's, you know, making sure there is protected teacher planning time, you know, understanding that, you know, teachers do need a break wherever possible rather than trying to fill any and all available space with PD or whatever it is that we feel we can, you know, do to get more out of the faculty that we have. Hmm. You mentioned, Julie, the the work you've done, you know, understanding um, from the policy level, right? You've you told me you uh, learned how the educational sausage was made, right? <laughs> Working with the Department of Ed and the Senate and the White House. What were some of those uh, biggest takeaways? Yeah, that was uh, still looking back, a crazy experience to have had to go from almost directly from being a classroom teacher to advising a senator on education policy. And it was a huge honor, but more importantly, I realized how much I didn't know. I had always sort of lamented the existence of policymakers in my classroom. What do they know? Um, Okay, I'll I'll check the boxes of what I need to do, but then I'm going to shut my classroom door and I'm going to teach the way I know I need to teach my students and 
you know, these people are so disconnected from real life, from practice, just kind of had a, a disdain for all of the, uh, all the policy folks that just didn't understand what, what reality was. And so I ended up taking a fellowship that was aimed at getting academics into the federal government and mm. took a job at the department of ed and then worked at the office of a U.S. senator as his education policy L.A. Uh, legislative assistant. And that was probably the most eye-opening experience that I had, given that I did not know how legislation was made other than my, you know, high school civics class level of education on this. And I thought, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I hope nobody figures out that I don't know what I'm doing, uh, but the senator was awesome. He was super happy to have a teacher in this role, really understood what value that brought, and that gave me the confidence to be able to do it. But I had sought out mentors as well on Capitol Hill and realized you know, that I needed some folks on my side that could I could confide in that I didn't know what I was doing. What is your advice here? What resources can I draw on? And I went, I had heard um, through the grapevine, well, there's this woman that you really need to meet. She's the one that single-handedly got every, the every student succeeds act through, um, which, you know, coming off of a lot of uh, disdain for no child left behind. I'm thinking this woman's like a superhero. She got this, standardized testing stuff out of the school's, uh, you know, systems. But I went and met her and got her story. And she told me, oh yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't even know what was in No Child Left Behind. I had to have the Congressional Research Service come in and give me a, a primer on this. They came and gave me a presentation and we had beer and pizza and I just got a crash course in it. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, nobody here knows what they're doing everybody's trying to figure it out, drawing on the resources available and doing the best that they can. And you can still do really incredible things. Mm. So that was, that was a light bulb moment for me to look around at all these people I was meeting um, in the Senate and in working in the white house and realizing none of these people necessarily know what they're, they're doing and they're not worried about it. They're, they're moving forward. They're, they have confidence in what they know and what they know they can do. And they are still doing amazing things. So that, I think that was the biggest light bulb moment I had. And that was what actually inspired this new book, Failure Before Success, because it made me realize this is a message that I want all new teachers to understand that all of the expert educational experts all the scholars all of the superstars that you look up to they have made all the same mistakes you've made more than likely they don't know what they're doing necessarily any more than any of the rest of us do and we need to think about how we can really sink our teeth into that notion and draw on it rather than trying to hide where we think our blind spots are or our misgivings etc yeah, well, what I appreciate, there's a lot to appreciate from that story, but it just it really makes you relatable uh, in the sense that we're all we're all going through this. Right. And uh, the fact that you reached out for help, you know, 
and connected yourself by networking and getting resources and then not letting the imposter or the resistance stop you in your tracks from moving forward. So you continue to learn, find that support group and uh, keep moving forward is, you know, what I'm hearing. And plus uh, beer and pizza doesn't hurt. So uh, (laughs) that's a good thing. Cool. Well, Julie, I'm loving our conversation. We're going to pause here just for a second and get in a message from our sponsors. When we get back, I want to hear about why you wrote Failure Before Success. Teachers describe what they learned from mistakes. Learn how to successfully drive school change and help your diverse stakeholders establish priorities and improve practice in leading change. A certificate in school management and leadership course from Harvard. Topics include adaptive leadership, culture equity, and more. Leading Change runs from February 2nd to March 2nd, 2022. Apply by January 21st. Enroll by January 27th. Get started at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. That's betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose virtual PD is equipping thousands of teachers with the skills they need to create engaging, equitable, and rigorous virtual or blended classes. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. And we're back with Dr. Julie Warner. Her most recent book is Failure Before Success, Teachers Describe What They Learned From Mistakes. And Julie, why did you write this book? I wrote this book because it was the book that I needed to read. I did not come across too many helpful books as a new teacher that would give me that orientation I needed to get my feet on the ground across an array of different topics from classroom management to grading um, to cultural competence. There just wasn't anything out there like that. And I knew having met all these incredible people over the course of my career in the education field that had amazing stories to share about critical incidents in their career, things that happened that led them from point A to point B in terms of learning something new, figuring something out that, that really propelled their practice forward. And so I solicited a number of stories from folks that uh, friends and acquaintances about different failure points, critical incidents, big mistakes that they felt they'd made and what they learned from them and ended up with this volume failure before success that talks about stories across failures in classroom management, cultural mismatch um, that just, you know, felt like a failure, grading, any kind of administrative, just all the issues that teachers face, but told through a narrative format. And it's just such an engaging format. It feels like 
not just an instructional manual, which it is kind of at its heart, but also a long talk with a trusted mentor or friend. So it's, it's, it's really relatable and um, accessible for readers. Do you mind sharing one of your uh, favorite stories maybe uh, from the book with the listener? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. Um, I, I had Finnish scholar, Cassie Salberg, he is a global education scholar, wrote uh, a section for this book that just blew me away about not understanding the culture of the school and not in the same way that I didn't understand maybe the culture in South Georgia, but he didn't understand the professional culture and how to connect with other educators in the school around how they thought about practice how were they really thinking about what they did in the classroom and how to reflect and get better hmm. and how to share with each other what they were learning through their own individual practices, what was kind of something that they could extrapolate and share and build and have that kind of socially constructed bank, I guess, of best practices. He didn't understand what it meant to be a professional as a teacher necessarily. That that blew me away just because this this guy is drawn on, you know, looked to by everybody across the globe as being, you know, this sure. educational expert. And he's, he's, you know, learning these lessons alongside us. Um, there's a, there's a work by a former state teacher of the year who taught at a Bureau of Indian Education School. She's a white teacher and came in thinking, wow, I'm going to, do all of this great stuff with my students, brought a work in that another teacher told her, well, this is really reductionist. Like you should not use this book with your students. It's actually, it's problematic on a number of levels. And she really had to dig in and look at her assumptions about the students that she was teaching, the lens that she brought into the classroom and try to unpack really what is the net effect of having my positionality as a white woman in this professional role with these students and everything that she learned along the way. Yeah, that sounds powerful. So I highly recommend Ruckus Makers List and pick up your, your new book. It'll be linked up uh, in the show notes for sure. And uh, it will be a great read. So, Julie, what message would you put on all school marquees across the globe if you could do so for just a day? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that kids read school marquees. So this was a tough one for me. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, who speaks more to the hearts of young people than other young people? I think they all really know what each other needs to hear. So I think it would be really amazing to have young people create uplifting messages for school marquee and and really be able to to spread that positivity that way yeah i think um maybe that's rooted in your uh your your experience right as a researcher and that kind of thing and it's getting closest you know to the people on the ground the students in this case and in finding and mining the relevant uh, messages is what i'm hearing you say from them so cool uh, in terms of building your dream school, you're not limited by any resources, Julie. Your only limitation is your imagination. How would you build your dream school and what would be your top three priorities? 
Well, I'm also an ed tech researcher and consultant. And so I'm constantly looking at this idea of how would we reconfigure the school space. So I, I love this question. I um I think we have a real resourcing issue right now with what we've seen with the shift to remote learning in so many um, context practically overnight as the result of this global pandemic. We've really seen where we have this gulf between what's kind of the reality of the 21st century in terms of teaching and learning and where we're at, where we've been, which has been more rooted in sort of a print literacies orientation and more of this sort of like factory model ethos or approach to learning um, where, you know, I think what, what we really need right now are ways to prepare students for careers that may not even exist yet. And it might take a few generations for, you know, I think the, the system to really catch up because so many of us that are in teaching roles and are in school leadership roles have been so entrenched in the old way. And in some ways we're preparing students for something that doesn't even exist. How do you, how do you, how do you do that? So I think I would, in my perfect dream school, <laughs> have a, have a group of, of um, folks that are in some of these new careers where they've charted their own way, whether it's video game designer or backend programmer or, you know, online marketing, whatever it might be, some of these careers of the future charted their own way and that can mentor students and say, you know, this is how I did this. This is sort of, you know, this alternative maybe pathway. So I think, you know, just having those resources available for students beyond just the traditional teacher, but some way to have that apprenticeship and that mentorship, that informal learning, I think that would be number one for me. Uh, of course, this probably goes without saying, but the connectivity piece for all students, all of the uh, hardware and software that they would need to fully participate in this, you know, new, um, I guess, you know, fourth wave of, of the internet. And yeah, just, just to make sure that there are spaces where students can learn that are fluid not as structured as what we would think of as a traditional classroom, but spaces that are available for learning, but not in a constraining way. Julie, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. Of all the things we talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? I want a ruckus maker to remember that they have all the answers inside of them, I want them to remember never to be afraid to use your voice, use your agency. You have something to say, you have something to add, whether you think you have the authority to speak in a particular space or not, take chances, take risks, and just follow your heart. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. 
you can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.